Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And this is episode 47, The Promise is Given. This double episode is going to make heavy use of Christopher Hill's Century of Revolution. More than usual use of a single source for me. And for this double episode, we're being joined by Bre Hex, who's bringing us a perspective from the music world and from the world of stage. And we're lucky to have him here. Hello, Harold. Glad to be on the show. We ended the last episode with Cromwell and the army uniting. The potential leveler mutiny never happens. A few ringleaders are shot, and that is enough. Charles I is captive on the Isle of Wight under army control. There, he plots for an uprising and enters into a conspiracy with a party of Scots called the Engagers. The whole subject of conspiracies in history is very controversial, but this activity of Charles with the Scots is definitely a conspiracy. They exchange messages using lead cylinders hidden in the garden. These Scots, the Engagers, will raise an army, but it will not be the tough, highly trained Covenanter army we've seen in the last two invasions of England. That's disbanded. This will be a new force. Uh, some veterans, true, and raw recruits, poorly trained and equipped. Cannons? What are those? This will be the third of four invasions of England. Rebellion is raised in South Wales and flares up in several places around England. And the Scots are invading and all for the cause of the king. Our king and our god. My god and my right. Wow, really? Well, no, it was more complicated than that. The country was terribly unsettled. The army was not part of the constitution, but it looked a lot like a co-equal part of government. Puritan-denominated town councils and JPs started flexing their muscles, doing unpopular things like banning Christmas celebrations. Some of the leaders of the uprising had fought on the parliament side and just felt that things had gone too far. Also, some families were about to have their land confiscated for supporting the king in the previous war and felt they had nothing left to lose. This is often called the Second Civil War. But I thought everyone was sick and tired of the First War. The big issue here was about how to disband safely so they could go home. Yeah, and that made this war different. Along with the fact that this time the new model army was there, it already existed. There was no need for a long period of consensus building that Yes, I suppose we want to defeat the king, do we? Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, yes, I think we do. Uh, the new model army just went to work, grimly, and many local militias went to the task of reducing towns that declared for the king. I said the new model army went to work grimly. Grimly is just the beginning of the idea I want to give you. They felt betrayed. They wanted no part of this war. They were forced into it to save England. They had this sense that it should never have happened. It was all unnecessary, futile. I mean, they were going to win, so why is the other side bothering to fight? And it was all the king's fault. Everyone knew something had to be done about Ireland. They were trying to figure that out when, again, the king starts this second war. Oliver Cromwell went to work in Wales and suppressed the rising there. 
Then he moved north in cooperation with another parliamentary army led by John Lambert, another good independent Puritan. There in Lancashire, they met the Scots and their small number of English supporters under Marmaduke Langdale. Gotta love that name. Marmaduke Langdale. There, by maneuver, superior leadership, and careful planning, Cromwell arranged to fight the Scots in the most advantageous of circumstances, catching them halfway into crossing a river in a battle known as the Battle of Preston. It was a short fight, but the important part happened after the Royalists and the Scots were forced to retreat. Cromwell pursued the defeated Scots across the country in a manner that reminds me of Napoleon after the jena arstadt battles, where, after one day of hard fighting, the subsequent pursuit led to the near annihilation of the Prussian army in 1806. For Cromwell, too, the vigorous pursuit led to surrender, a total victory. Cromwell lost maybe 200 men, but killed or captured the entire Royalist and Scots field army of 11,000 men. He got them all. Another one of those examples of a high-quality army led by a military genius that overturns events. Parliament and the army were much harsher after this war. Several Royalist leaders were executed. Uh, They would have got Marmaduke Langdale. But he avoided execution by dressing as a milkmaid and escaping across country, eventually to flee the continent. And later you'll be glad to know that this is a true thing that can happen. It might sound a little comical, but another royalist commander, Bernard Gascoigne, avoided execution for tourist reasons. Yeah, seriously. He was a Florentine, and it was argued that they should spare him because it's a lot of fun to go to Italy. But then his family or descendants might kill them or their descendants. I like that, really. It's just an excuse. Someone found a good excuse not to kill. Many of the common soldiers were sentenced to transportation, i.e. indentured servitude. Most went to the Caribbean, where European annual death rates were over 50%. The lucky ones went to Virginia, and you would have to be very lucky indeed to get one of the Massachusetts colonies. The main reason for the harshness has to be the loss of patience. The sheer frustration of having to fight an unnecessary war. Sometimes a second war, as the world has seen, creates a determination that there will not be a third war, and that leads people to do things previously unthinkable. And doing without a king was previously unthinkable, but it wasn't anymore, not to the army. And because most of the Presbyterians in Parliament were still against the army and wanted a king, Ireton and Colonel Pride, probably with a nod from Cromwell, though we don't know for sure, and Cromwell always denied it, purged the Presbyterian royalists from the House of Commons, leaving behind only the rump parliament. A rump parliament, because they were only a remnant. (laughs) Rump. Did they kill the Presbyterian members? No, no. Colonel Pride merely stood outside parliament with a few troops and a list in his hand and told each member whether he could go in or had to go home. It was one and done. I don't recall any killing associated with it. And uh, just a couple score arrests, like 45, most quickly released. Uh, Some of the MPs complained about being roughed up, but their guards were the same soldiers they'd been trying to screw out of their pay, the same ones who'd lost comrades. 
whose widows and orphans these MPs wanted to ignore, so honestly, I think it's amazing none of them were killed. You don't recall? Sounds like you were there. Of course I was there. And though this was a harsher response to the Second Civil War, this was still minimally murdery England, so the killings were very small in number, and like the number of witch burnings, almost trivial compared to continental exercises in the same function. By this time, England is not like the rest of Europe. Uh, we should really keep that in mind going further. Uh, for example, you would never have seen the Putney debates anyplace else. A much greater difference than merely abolishing feudal land tenure and allowing free movement by wage earners. Remember that these things are caused by a moral preference for freedom over compulsion. Uh, just as an aside, Colonel Pride's a great character, a Puritan of the Middle Orders, capable, seemingly without doubt, without fear. He faced down these outraged gentlemen, his social superiors, with a look. Uh, the rump does a few things. According to Jonathan Scott, it does more to move the world forward than any comparable body in so short a time. <coughs> you said rump again. First, though, they have a king to kill. The man of blood who caused this second civil war. The army was simply done with Charles. Just done. And no wonder. And many of the colonels, the men who commanded regiments, were also political radicals with lower class origins who sincerely believed, or at least professed to believe, in the Puritan dogma that one good man was as good as another. When people said there was no legal way to try the king, they pushed on. When even one of the judges wavered, Cromwell said, I tell you, we will cut off his head with the crown still on it. And they did. January 1649 at the banqueting house. Charles was lucky. His head was swept off in one blow. Uh, lucky because the executioners were amateurs. No professional executioners existed in England. And really interestingly, historians have never been able to establish their identities. It's still a secret. Did Oliver Cromwell giggle? Uh, maybe play that little clip. Witnesses say the crowd groaned a terrible groan. The execution may have been inevitable, may have been necessary, but most could not feel it was right. But there was a solitary giggle from Oliver Cromwell, right? Uh, that's a line from a Monty Python song, but it's just royalist propaganda. According to Cromwell's biographer, there are six credible accounts of his movements that day. Cromwell was not even present at the execution, though he did lots of organizing, writing out warrants and orders for the execution and later burial. Imagine a hard-working event planner, so busy they can't even enjoy the event. And you'll about have it. Uh, this execution happened despite the fact that very few people would have chosen to do it. 
It is obvious that most would have preferred a king. It was very obvious after the fact. The country was shocked. Europe was shocked. It was the strangest of codas to the Thirty Year War. To me, the weirdest thing, though, was that they did not simply place one of Charles's children on the throne. Yeah, and Charles had many sons. The army was in no mood for reconciliation, however, and it was easy for many because of ideology to dispense with monarchy. But these radicals, you have to remember, were a real minority in English society. They also dispensed with the House of Lords. The House of Lords was abolished. They also abolished the bishops. These were important moves for the unity and stability of the army. The radicals, remember, wanted equality, no nobility, no special gentry privileges, no king, near universal voting rights, and religious toleration. And the radicals were strong in the army. Cromwell gave them their two main political objectives, no king, no nobility, and he guaranteed religious toleration. Also, he gave the army the key personal things the army wanted, their back pay, indemnity, and provision for widows and orphans. That was enough. They stayed united. There was no third civil war. The independents in the rump parliament were above all the kind of men who get elected to parliament, gentrymen of property. In some of their views, especially on religious toleration, they resembled the army's radical views, but they were elected to parliament the old way. They were also part of the natural rulers of England. They didn't believe in social equality, and so they kept the limited franchise and their privileges as gentlemen. And so, even though they seemed like radicals, were radicals in many ways, they were essentially socially conservative, and inevitably socially conservative politics began to win out. It's really interesting that we have a radical revolution, really, but the limited subset of radicals in power, the MPs, Cromwell and the other generals like Fairfax, were also social conservatives in the sense that they liked their privileges as gentry. Give those up in the name of our noble ideals? No, no way. What kind of world do you think this is? The levelers, the out-and-out radicals, were sophisticated politically and had an outsized influence because their numbers were always small for a time, but the rank-and-file soldiers proved to be more concerned with, with their own personal economic issues. Over time, the more radical colonels would be purged or sent overseas, and the army gradually became more professional, less ideological. It was this taming of the army over the next ten years that made it possible to restore the Stuarts in 1660. Uh, but that's a future episode. A uh, Commonwealth was declared in May 1649 with the Rump Parliament and the army working together. The men from the army side were of much lower social rank than was typical of the natural rulers of England. Uh, here's a list showing low social rank. The source of some of it is royalist gossip, but instead of men with great estates or large merchant companies, we have these colonels. Colonel Pride himself, who used to work for a brewer, Harrison, who I mentioned before, a cattle fattener. Ewer, governor of the Isle of Wight, was previously a servant. Hewsome, a shoemaker. Oakey, a tallow merchant. Barkstead, a thimble maker. Goff, a salt maker. Barry, a clerk. And Kelsey, a button maker. And plenty of modest yeoman farmers also. 
These were men who had risen on merit their own talents, and within a committee structure set up by Parliament, they would cooperatively rule the country with the MPs remarkably wisely. It must be said they started with a big financial advantage. They had the king's lands to sell and royalist families to fine. They raised seven million pounds from land sales alone. So they first made land more valuable by ending feudal tenure a couple episodes ago. And now, between the king's land and the royalist lands, they must have had huge amounts available to sell. Oh yeah, but they had disadvantages too. Every harvest was bad until 1653. They had to keep a large army in the field because Ireland, the Irish Civil War, still needs to be put down and the Scots will decide that Charles Stuart, that's Charles II, son of Charles I, is the rightful king. So Scotland had to be invaded and conquered. These are interesting and consequential enough events enough to be covered in a future episode. Ireland, because it was a Catholic bastion of monarchical power, Cromwell will break Catholic power in a long-lasting way. Scotland, because Cromwell will invade and conquer them, despite that always having proved impossible before. A free trade agreement will effectively join Scotland to England. Scottish intellectual firepower will abandon the Calvinist realm to give the world the greatest of moral philosophies and secure the miracle. When you really stop and think about it, the Scottish Enlightenment gave the world truly magnificent gifts and has to be accounted as a miracle within the miracle. So I want to cover the Commonwealth period in some detail, and we will in episode 51. We've had a revolution that no one is calling a revolution, and typical of successful Republican revolutions, there will follow a period of imperial expansion, but untypically, there will not be degeneration to mass slaughter, minimally murdery. The one horrific exception will be trade in African slaves to the New World, but even within the slave trade, the reaction to it in England will eventually be so strongly against that the Royal Navy will just forbid the entire world from importing African slaves. They will even force the Islamic countries, the originators of the African slave trade, to cease importing Africans. But getting to that point where the Royal Navy can just dominate the oceans of the world and dictate better behavior is the story of the miracle. It is what this podcast season is all about. The Industrial Revolution does not only improve the material basis of life for more and more and more of the world, but gradually becomes the support for the motive force behind human freedom. And it will start with the growth of the Navy, which we will cover beginning in episode 51, with a massive expansion. And we will leave it here, full of high-flown ideals, in a 17th century world where life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and I wanted to thank Buddha Hex for coming on the program. I thought it was really funny, and he'll be with us again next week. Uh, Brehex, by the way, is a Norwegian that just means bread witch, like a, like a loaf of bread that can cast a spell. We're not having conversations with Cami this week after all. You know that she works in social work, and that's a field that has its emergencies, and this week, uh, there are really quite a lot of them, so she'll be back next week.
it occurs to me I could briefly expound on a couple of things. Um, Charles and his secret messages. Uh, he got into a lot of trouble with his correspondence because a lot of them were intercepted. After the Battle of Marston Moor that we talked about a couple episodes ago, his correspondence was captured as he and his retinue had to flee the field. He'd been making secret treaties with Catholics in Ireland and in Scotland, and this correspondence was published in London, and it really hardened hearts against him. These messages with the Scottish engagers uh, were also intercepted and were widely known about in the army. It also contributed to Charles's reputation with them as the instigator of the war and just a useless person because you couldn't negotiate with him. There was no way to get to a settlement with him. But what about the legality of Charles's trial and execution? There was no legality to it. The court was a court appointed by the rump. It wasn't a court that, you know, was previously existed, didn't function under common law. Uh, there were just a bunch of commissioners appointed to be the bench and act as judges. They weren't necessarily really judges. Uh, it's kind of like uh, impeachment in the United States. It's all uh, a political act. There are no precedents to follow and no requirements that everything be done in a way that would be legal for other kinds of cases. There's no upper court review no possibility of appeal. It's a form of politics that has a judicial appearance, but is, is just politics. An uh, interesting incident from the trial, Charles claimed how he first understood he would really be executed. He was sitting in the court. He tried to stop one of the prosecutors from passing him uh, with his silver-tipped cane, and the tip fell off on the floor. You know, and it clattered to the floor, bing, 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 but nobody rushed to pick it up and give it to him. And supposedly that was the moment when he realized he really wasn't the king. And then that last quote I had at the end, Life in a State of Nature, uh, that's by Thomas Hobbes from his political treatise, Leviathan, which he completed in 1651, but obviously had been writing throughout the late 1640s and the crisis of that period. Uh, was, you know, doubtless an inspiration to one of the greatest works of political philosophy uh, we've ever seen. One of its great effects was to stimulate a kind of opposition in John Locke, who would put forth an even greater political philosophy. He's the one who came up with the formulation that all men have the right to life, liberty, and property, which was slightly reformulated and made slightly more specific or slightly clearer in the Declaration of Independence with the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we'll end here. Thanks for listening. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. Just remember, you can always reach me at herald at hangingwithhistory.com. That's Harold is H-A-R-A-L-D at hangingwithhistory.com or through the Contact Us link on the website. <laughs>